Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. We are back. It is the end of summer almost. I have my first meeting in two days. Um, and by the time you all hear this, I will already have been in school for at least a week. Um, and Alicia, you are winding down just summer oh, activity, right? Not you're, you're still working, but you're winding down summer activity. I am already the beginning of a new fiscal year. Uh, before we started this recording, I was in meetings from 9am to I took a small lunch break where I read your memoir. And then I jumped onto this call. So this whole winding down what you talking about? No, like, <laughs> we are in August season of the school year. Everyone's still hyped. We're doing the new things. My clients and I are having a great time. I've launched a new site. I've done all the things. I'm living my best life over here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And here I am just thinking about the fact that I've got meetings on Friday and then Four. I have a whole new course that I'm teaching this year that I've got to get started working on. And think, but I've already worked on it some this summer. We did some summer work. Yeah, you're making fun of me. Oh, yeah. I did... No, this is 100%. You, you just got back from Florida. Let's be honest. Okay. Uh, but... We are not here just to talk about ourselves. We're also here to lit think with all of you. Our brains have been doing it all summer. <laughs> Someday, Sarah and I should just screenshot some of our chat together because half of it is, so when are we doing that? And the other half is, oh my gosh, have you watched this yet? I want to talk about it. <laughs> Can we talk about it this season? And the thing, if you haven't heard either of us yet, it's been maybe mine. I know you've been more excited <laughs> about the Oppenheimer of the Barbenheimer universe, but I have been... My little 90s girl heart has been so excited for the Barbie movie since I saw the first poster, let alone then the trailer, which is the opening scene of the movie, essentially. I mean, it's just the marketing behind both of these films, but I think especially the Barbie film. We know Barbie is a material girl in a material world, but Chef's Kiss, they did a really good job of promoting this film. And I think it did not disappoint, which is why Sarah and I are both so excited. We... I broke my my rule of, hey, movies cost lots of money. We're going to go see them. Sarah used her AMC membership to <laughs> go check it out. But uh, we are here to talk about Barbie. Dare we call it a modern feminist manifesto? And we encourage all of you, take a break from the heat. Go enjoy some of that beautiful, beautiful AC in a movie theater and check out Barbie ASAP. Absolutely. And yes. We did the Barbenheimer. My husband and I did a 6.30 showing of Oppenheimer, and then we did a 10 o'clock showing of Barbie, and between those two showings, we sent text messages to children and told them to go to bed. <laughs> it was the perfect evening. Like, we just had this amazingly perfect evening. Missed out on the whole dressing up in pink. Should have done that. But other than that, it was it was a good time. It was absolutely a good time. And it, it led to a lot of good conversation between us and then good conversation with you when we finally got on the call today to talk about it. So yeah, yeah. Highly recommend it for a lot of reasons. So here's here, here's two housekeeping questions before we go any further, Sarah. Question number one, do you believe that that was the correct order to watch them in Oppenheimer and then Barbie to end on Barbie? It was a good palate cleanser. Because Oppenheimer, and I'm trying to convince you that we should do this later. We should do Oppenheimer later this season. But Oppenheimer was 
brilliant in my opinion. And I'm a, as a history geek who also loves World War II history, um, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed Oppenheimer. But you leave there feeling like, oh no, <laughs> the world's going to end. And so <laughs> it was really good to have that palate cleanser of coming into Barbie. And I, I think I've seen a lot of really good commentary about both films and just the fact that they really both are coming of age from the same time period, right? Because Oppenheimer takes place in the 1950s, or uh, parts of it take place in the 1950s. Barbie came out um, out of the same era of just needing the girls to have a toy that was theirs to play with. And, and in many ways, um, even the feminist discussion of feminism comes out in talking about the effects of the atomic bomb and the effects of Barbie. So I think that it was the right order to go in. Mm-hmm. We had our Oppenheimer tickets first. And then my husband was like, we okay. need to see Barbie at the same night because everyone's doing it. <laughs> so we did it the same night. Um, but it was good. All the cocos are going out to see both of them on the same night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I, I get into that. Who can afford two movies in one night right now? But uh, our second housekeeping note right now is – Going into this season, we gave you guys maybe a little bit of uh, a booster last season. We had our 30-second summaries online. As Sarah and I are still working on working smarter, not harder, and feeding the beast of social media, we are going to cut those 30-second summaries this season. We have gotten some feedback from a few of you saying that realistically, you don't come to an episode unless you have already viewed that media yourself. So we're just going to lean into that and understand that there are summaries online that you can access. So if you have not yet seen the Barbie movie or are just interested in hearing what we have to say about the Barbie movie without you yourself paying for a ticket, know that we are trusting you to be your own expert. We are going to speak as people with spoilers who have already seen the film and are here and ready to discuss yeah. it at the end of the film. Agreed. Yeah, so, that's what we're doing. Yeah, fair. Okay. So... If we're calling Barbie our feminist manifesto, we realistically need to speak through the lens of feminism. You know this is a topic close and near and dear to Sarah's and my hearts. We have looked at lots of different angles of feminism, I think, in a lot of our other topics and a lot of other episodes. But I think today specifically, we're going to look at about five or six terms that we think really directly relate to the feminism represented in Barbie. We're also going to maybe name some of the gaps. This is a satirical film, let's be honest. It's satirizing the gender binary, um, which we will talk about in just a minute a little bit more. But then part of what we're also going to do is maybe name the weaknesses of this satire along with its strengths. And, hey, we're also going to talk about the best speech of all time by America Ferreira in this film because I just want it as a poster. I really do. I also want this uh, soundtrack on repeat (laughs) in my life. I have been listening to Lizzo's Pink Song and Just Ken a lot. And I need to share them with my tiny human who really loves dancing these days. But why don't we go ahead and get started, Sarah? If we're just talking about feminism as a lens, can you talk about, let's already name like what we assume that term means. And can you expand that definition a bit for us? Initially, I think people just look at feminism and they say, oh, it's supposed to be just about equal rights and equal access. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot more to it. And 
it it has gotten to the point where feminism can have uh as a term there are people who are going to be uncomfortable with it because they're just like well then what happens to men which we're going to talk about um but it is more than that it's about civil rights it's about yeah that whole idea of feminazi which is so unfair to most women who really are looking for civil rights the guarantee of equal social opportunities and equal protection like that's what they that's what we want is we want to be protected and have equal social opportunities be able to have the same pay as men be able to have the same opportunities as men um to the to meet your skills you know i personally would be a terrible soldier i know i would be a terrible soldier i don't have the physique for it i don't have the mental fortitude for it I don't want to learn how to shoot guns. I don't want to do any of that. But there are women who are excellent soldiers and work in the military. And if they have that ability and that fortitude, then absolutely let them have the opportunity to serve their country that way. Right? Like, let them do that. And and that comes with the civil rights. So I think one of the things you and I talked about before we started recording is to acknowledge that, first of all, the term civil rights it, we hear it so often through the lens of um, Black History Month or other times like this in relation to race. But first and foremost, civil rights are defining this concept of social and legal agency for all individuals in all forms, regardless of race, religion, or other personal characteristics. And one of those factors can be gender expression, which for us, mm-hmm. through the lens of Barbie, is female identifying and presenting individuals. So I think one of the things I really loved, if we can kind of start about like just talking about feminism in the film, I, I love, you know, the, the Barbie is presented as the solution to the gender binary, the, the, the solution to toxic masculinity. Girls are being told they don't just have to be a mom anymore. They can be anything. And so in the Barbie world, Women are anything. They are presidents. They are lawyers. They are doctors. They they run. They have the Supreme Court. They run this world in Barbie land. And I think about kind of that opening scene. There's one of the lawyers who says, you know, I have both emotion and logic. And that doesn't make me weaker. That makes me stronger in this moment. So it's then the gender binary is this assumption that I think in relation to civil rights, that rights should be deferred based on that binary, both for men and for women. But feminism is arguing, no, it needs to be about inclusion. And it's not just specifically, if we think about intersectionality, it's not just about gender. It's also about class. It's about uh, physical ability. We, we saw a Barbie in a wheelchair in, in a passing scene, but we saw many different body-shaped Barbies. We saw so much of just... Barbie is trying to expand our vision of what the world could be. Of what the world for women could be. Yeah. And I think that becomes, that becomes something later as we talk about Ken later, but it does, it it opens up this idea of what women could be and what they could have Mm -hmm. as part of their existence, their careers, even the way they relate to each other and the way they relate to their roles as potentially moms we get midge right we have you know we we have a mom (laughs) is one of the barbies um and i think that's probably one of 
the beautiful things actually about the very opening sequence where you have the girls with their baby dolls and mm-hmm. they're all of a sudden told they don't have to just have a baby doll. They don't have to just learn how to iron. They don't have to just learn how to be like, there's more that they can do and that mm-hmm. they can. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's important for boys and girls to play with baby dolls and to understand the importance of caretaking and the importance of compassion and, and being able to be in, in charge of the care of another human being. I think that's good for both boys and girls to learn, but there's more there should, you should be allowed to have more. Well, and to just the concept of imagination and role playing this, that is such a, a huge part yes. of creativity and problem solving that leads mm-hmm. to successful adults. But I think one of the terms that we haven't mentioned yet, Sarah, that is actually so crucial as we think through a historical feminist lens is uh, the phrase, the angel in the house that we need to acknowledge the reason why women for so long have been removed, especially from, if we're talking about social and legal spheres, that therefore there's the political sphere, is I brought up that quote of that lawyer who's saying, I have both emotion and logic and that doesn't make me weaker, that makes me stronger. Women, especially in American society, have been set literally on this assumed pedestal that they are meant to be the moral arrow And therefore, we can't bring them into the corrupt spaces of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, aka the American political system, because it will corrupt their purity, their moral backbone, aka their emotional spine that men are not supposed to have in the legal and political system. Which was a Victorian ideal, right? The angel in the house was a Victorian ideal. It was this whole idea that women were supposed to be the the model moral character of the house, that they were supposed to raise the children in the modern moral character, and men couldn't be trusted to be that way. Um, and it's something I love to talk about when I'm dealing with anything that is Victorian in nature with my students, because it's that it that is it's important to understand i use that with dracula when we talk about dracula i'm like here we've got these female characters that are definitely the angels in the house like they're supposed to fall into this very strict standard and how do they fall into that strict standard and how maybe do they not you know mina's not really the angel in the house she really isn't she does several things that are not and i i think that is what barbie started to up up end in, in role play for girls is that they could start to see themselves as more than just the housekeeper. There's this fascinating article that I saw well before the movie came out, but in the whole build up to Barbie and that was, a, it was in the New York times and it looked at Barbie dream house and how the Barbie dream house doesn't have stuff in it and never has never has had stuff in it that highlights a role as a homemaker she has her bedroom, she has a bathroom, she has a shower, she has television, but even the kitchen isn't about homemaking. It's about having access to food. It's yeah. having access to, to those types of things. The homemaking isn't really a part of the Barbie dream house experience. There isn't an oven. And the yeah. first Barbie dream house came out before. Yeah. And it came out well before women even could own a credit, could have a credit card, right? So girls were already being taught through the house that Barbie had that there was more to their existence than what they could do in the kitchen, which is, it was a fascinating look at the evolution of that. Well, so then like if we pull apart, right, the the feminist perspective of Barbie, the film, we have, we speak about 
who and how Barbie is visually as, as a career woman, as a homeowner. We also see her in how she is materially and that that is brought up of like, okay, but to, to buy into the Barbie dream, you have to have the money to buy Barbie. So there is still, she is ultimately feeding the cash cow of America. And then there's a third part that we really, I think, I'm sure you have a moment like this too, but I can think at some point in my life at the time that I was holding a Barbie and thinking, I will never look like this. Or if I have curves in the way that Barbie does, I know they are something to be ashamed of because my curves will never come with that waistline or my curves will come with cellulite. My curves will come with the very things that Barbie fears. I will not ever be able to comfortably fit into high heels. I will never be able to, you know, have this literal hourglass figure in these ways. Uh, I will never have the perfect hair or the perfect makeup. I will have days where I have bags under my eyes, no matter how hard I try. And I, I think the film actually holds all three of those elements of the Barbie lore very well. I I think it carries all three of those kind of issues and joys and balances them and addresses them very beautifully. Well, I think about that moment when you said that about having everything be perfect and wearing high heels, that moment when Margot Robbie as Barbie has flat feet and she's like, if my feet were like this all the time, I would never wear high heels. And I'm like, duh this is why i wear flats all the time like there's no way if my feet were not shaped and my feet are not shaped to be in high heels so if my feet are not shaped to be in high heels why would i want to wear high heels all the time and this is nothing against people who wear high heels and stilettos all the time all more power to you that is great that is not me i wore ballet flats for my wedding day because i was not wearing heels on my wedding day um, and so like, there's, there's that part. And then I think about how Sasha, when she comes, when Barbie comes into the junior high and is trying to talk to mm-hmm. Sasha and her friends and Sasha's like, uh, we want nothing to do with Barbie because you are like this ideal that nobody can possibly match up to. Right. Like they, as junior high girls being typical mean junior high girls, but also doing so in a way that's like, look, this is how we see Barbie. Now we've stopped playing with Barbie. We don't, idolize our Barbies anymore we we now see it as this ideal that we as teenage girls young teenage girls cannot meet and all of them are in black in very amorphous clothing right like they are they are the epitome the opposite of Barbie who you know comes mm-hmm. into the real world in yeah. her 80s roller skating glam and then shifts over into a very form-fitting cowgirl sparkle outfit both of which are accentuating her her perfect body um, you know, it's, it's the narrator who later on in the film makes a joke where Margot Robbie says, I don't feel beautiful. And they're like, note to the directors, Margot Robbie is not the person to like, have been in this role to prove this point. <laughs> it, it's still, I love Helen Mirren as the narrator was yes. such a delight. It was so perfect. There was also this moment um, that Greta Gerwig was possibly going to cut. People wanted her to cut it. But that moment when Barbie looks to the side and sees the older woman at the, the elderly woman at the cross at the bus stop and tells her she's beautiful. She says, I know. And, and I know. And she says, I know. And in this moment, there was this moment that, that 
some of the producers were like, well, maybe we should cut that because it was extra time and they didn't necessarily need it. And it didn't really kind of push the, the mess, didn't push the action of the movie along. Yeah. And Gerwig was like, no, I, that's the message of the film. Like how that's the heart, that's the heart that she wanted to come out of the film. So that's the heart she wanted to come out of the film. She couldn't cut that. And I'm really glad she didn't bow to pressure to cut it because I, I thought it was this incredible, beautiful moment. Yeah. And it did also show that part of feminism and discussion of feminism is that intersectionality, right? We are talking about race and class and gender and age because age, yeah. age becomes a big part of it too. Yeah. Right. Like, it, yeah. So all of these, there's this interconnected nature of who we are as human beings. We are not just women. Mm. Um, and men are not just men, right? Like we, we can talk about intersectionality with discussion of men's issues as well. But you know, if we're looking at feminism, it depends on what class you are. Mm. It depends on what race you are. You know, if you are of a lower economic class, yeah, you're good. You are going to face different struggles as a woman mm. than you're going to face as someone who has it made financially. However, you are still going to face a lot of the same struggles because of the fact that you're both women, right? It's just that the, the struggles may not be quite as intense or they are going to be a different type of work environment because yeah. you're still going to deal with sexism in a work environment as shown by the fact that the entire male, the entire board of Mattel was all men. Yeah. Well, and it's not like, it is funny <laughs> it, speaking as a queer person. I mean, so much of this film is specifically addressing the gender binary when, especially I think future generations are so beautifully saying the gender binary is bunk. We need to acknowledge that there, there is so much opportunity and agency when we acknowledge that gender expression can be fluid. When we think about even um, how Sasha was, again, presenting a much more androgynous look when criticizing Barbie for presenting such a toxically feminine look, essentially, is what she's saying. Um, so there, there's that. There's also, it's so interesting how many conservative parents were very concerned about this film because they felt that it was very affirming of fluid sexuality when ultimately, I mean, Ken only sees a world where he can be with Barbie. It's not like he, he gets over Barbie and he's like, now I can be gay. While there are more maybe effeminate presenting men in this world, it's still ultimately men do men things, women do women things. And this is, this is the world we live in. And even once we solve the problem, which we're going to talk about in a minute, there's still the reality of men do men things and women do men things. These are our lanes that we're in, right? And that those lanes that are emphasized in the film are part of the toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. right? Because Ken doesn't have a, Ken has no identity in the Barbie world. Mm -hmm. He is, he does beach. <laughs> he doesn't do anything but beach. He knows how to beach. He doesn't know how to be a lifeguard. He doesn't know how to save people's lives he doesn't know how to do anything but he knows how to play with the volleyball <laughs> that's what he knows how to do right and so that when when he finally finds it goes into the real world and he finds a world where men do things besides look pretty which is all he which Ryan Gosling just does so well. Oh, he just, oh. And he's so adorable. He really embraced this role. Like he oh, went all out with this role. Oh. It was fantastic. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Um, but that's part of it, right? Like he comes into the, the real world and he's like, wait, I can do more than just be. I can do more than just exist. 
And it is that flipping yes. of the narrative, right? It's flipping the script and he's realizing the script's been flipped on him. So then when he goes back and tries to flip the script back, it's also that whole idea of hypercorrection that when you live in a light in a world that has binaries like this, and when you live in a world that has either ors like this, when anyone tries to challenge it, then what you end up is a hypercorrection where people are trying to outdo each other and they go overboard. And instead of saying, well, how can we address the problems and how can we find solutions? It's just, well, here's a solution. We're just going to do it harder against you. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ken does. He does it harder against the Barbie. Well, so, and I, I think yeah. about the moment when someone just asked Ken for the time. And he then, again, hypercorrection. That means when he returns to Barbie world, he wears three watches. Because no one has ever asked him to be an expert in anything. As we're speaking about the, the ideal of feminism, it's ultimately about power and agency, which we talk all the time about. These are the types of you know authentic stories that we are seeking to amplify here on Lit Think. What that's coming back to is we want people who are sharing, get to share their whole story both the joys and the pitfalls, but then we're also trusting them to be an expert in their own experience. And Ken doesn't even get to be that with his Barbie in the world of Barbie at all in relation to Barbie. He's just Ken anywhere else he'd be. Best musical number I've seen in a minute. Yeah, that's just it. But what I love is, you know, he falls in love with this idea of horses so he brings horses back which is also weird horse power um, but horses. he brings the horses back but but then he realizes when barbie's like well you can do be whatever you want to be right it's like well i don't really all i really cared about i didn't care about patriarchy i, I like the horses like and i think what that shows is that when you stick things in a binary and you'd say that men have to be one way and women have to be another way and men have to have a certain job and women have to have a certain job that 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 puts everyone in a pigeonhole that puts everyone in a stuck position where you there is no chance to try something else that you might want to do which is goes to the whole that this was our problem with it right our problem with it was that it was it was great satire until the end when we didn't get a solution we just got a well then we're just going to Barbies are going to be in control until we decide to make things like the real world. Like that Barbie's just going to take control back. Well, right. And and Ken has to figure out who he is, but there's no through line that gives him a path to really begin that outside of, well, don't be in relationship to Barbie. Um, Interestingly, actually the end reminded me so much of the dystopian story, the power by Naomi Alderman, which this version is, you know, women are develop a mutation which initially then gives them the power to stand up to men, to break the patriarchal toxic masculinity cycle. But then once the women realize they have power, it, it, the whole point of this dystopia is it just shifts into a different world where now men are in charge and men are submissive. And so ultimately the same story is worked out here in the Barbie movie. It's well, you can have one hypercorrection or the other hypercorrection, but when men ask for a place at the table, 
the president says, oh, no, I can't do that. You can maybe have a position at a lower court. And in fact, they are then told, like the narrator says, which means that they'll have as much power as women in American society. Ooh, as a woman in American society, I'm not saying you got a lot of great future for you, Ken. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah I, yeah, I think this film does such a beautiful job of naming the problem. But if the point, if the point of satire is to offer us a, a direction, there is no solution offered at the end of this film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even when we talk about the, as you alluded to at the beginning of the episode, the best speech of all time, America Ferrer's speech is so incredibly powerful because it speaks to all of the problems that, that, you have to be two things at the same time all the time that you are told you have to be these two things at the same time all the time. And there's no way to be all the things all the time. Mm-hmm. And she speaks into that. Like, here's the reality for women. And, and let's be honest for a lot of men, that's a reality for men too. They are, don't have the exact same issues that women have, but there's a lot of things in the speech that would apply to men as well, especially as we try to figure out what does this mean? How can we have men in a world where they can have also the chance to have careers outside of just construction and being CEOs? Like there are other jobs that fit certain men better that they can succeed at but we haven't made it acceptable we haven't made it acceptable for a man to be a preschool teacher we haven't made it acceptable for a man to now there's more women pediatricians right like the the caretaking of children and the caretaking of patients beyond being a doctor well why don't you want to be a doctor well maybe they just want to be a nurse and that's not just a nurse i have people in my life who are amazing nurses that do more work than doctors do sometimes right and so there's just we could do so much better. But the speech is so good. It is so, so good. I was going to say, I want to just read that first paragraph because if anything, it's just so beautiful. But she says, it's it's literally impossible to be a woman. She's speaking to stereotypical Barbie played by Margot Robbie. She says, you're so beautiful and so smart. And it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. And this, this is the solution that the film offers is we just need to name that dissonance, but naming that dissonance solves the problem for the Barbies. It allows them to break free from the patriarchal structure that Ken has brought to Barbie world. It doesn't actually leave any room for the Kens. They took over the dream houses. Well, now they're back to being homeless. I mean, it's, it doesn't fix anything outside of I as a woman was like, yes, I feel this, you know? Yeah, I would have, that was where I wanted it to go. I wanted to go one step further Mm. and say, can we find a solution for Ken? Can we give Ken a job at least? (laughs) Or give him a house, give him some place to stay, even if it's a camper, like just give him something. (laughs) So he's always being sent away, right? Like it just, and, and now as we're in the, we are 23 years into the 21st century. Right. And my daughter hasn't played with Barbies in years. She's well past the Barbie stage, but I would like to see for future girls, you know, I think it would be good for future girls and future boys to be able to see a Ken that is doing something more than beach Mm -hmm. or groom. Then like going home, I'd like him to be doing something else. Going home with my partner. uh, The two of us got talking about how, do you know why I needed a Ken doll? I needed a Ken doll because I needed someone for my Barbie to be in a relationship with. And so then when I asked for a second Ken doll, my mom even said, 
why do you need a second Kendall? And I said, well, because I have more than one Barbie. But <laughs> there was still this, like, what is, what is, I'm, yeah, what is, she's not partnered with every single Barbie. She's like, every- right. But she was just kind of like, well, then you move Ken over, then you move Ken over. And I was like, well, what if Ken, what, like, what if Barbie wants to go on a double date? Like, hello. But still, th- this assumption, yeah, Ken's role is to be an accessory to Barbie. And by the end of the film, outside of, well, you can't be my accessory anymore, what else is there for Ken? So, uh, yeah. That was yeah. where, that's the one place I would have liked. I would have liked to have seen Gerwig go, like, add five minutes. It would have taken five minutes to give Ken a place to live and a job. Yeah. Like, that's it. Open it. So that he has know. some, yeah. so he has some meaning. Because I, and I know the movie does such a great job of making fun of Mattel as a company, too. And I, I applaud Mattel for being willing to be the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, like multiple times, right? Like they willingly made themselves the butt of the joke multiple times. But, you know, maybe that's a message too for toy companies to say, like, let's talk about what we can do to show that there's not a boy-girl toy binary. Like there, that we can be showing that boys can be doing certain things and girls can be doing other things too. That it's not just that they have to do these tasks. So I think about- And I think that that would be- yeah. A great move forward. I think about all the criticism that Target received when they removed their, like, you know, girl signifiers on the Barbie aisle and the boy signifiers on the Hot Wheels aisle, and they just said they're just toys, right? Like, anyone can buy them. So I, I see how yeah. we're heading in a direction of, a fu- again, a future world where I see future generations saying they're just toys. Anyone can like pink. Uh, the fact that they included Magic Earring Ken, I mean, they had allusions to plenty of queer culture icons. Uh, sugar daddy Ken also just made me giggle. <laughs> but, um, I, I also, I, I guess. Well, Alan was funny too. And I swear my aunts had an Alan. I swear they had an Alan. Like I just remember something. And I, that, I, I playing with that doll. Yeah. Separate from but, the, the material perspective, I think how this has even interfered or not interfered, but just integrated into YA literature. I can go into the YA lit section and find many, many books with female protagonists just from the covers alone but seeking a a male protagonist in modern YA lit is is actually harder and I think about when I wanted to put books in the hands of my students 95% of the time I was saying you have to be ready to read the story about a female protagonist and that hyper correction that Greta Gerwig is pointing to it's not just distinctly in this film. It's in lots of places. And I think we can do better. But how yeah. is the big question. I think that was one of the important things about the film mm-hmm. is that it brought up a lot of really important questions. And it's, it's led to a lot of really good discussions like us before we talked and then us doing the podcast. But I think a lot of people have been able to puzzle out what does this mean? And it's a movie that has appealed to men and women. Mm-hmm. And what I find fascinating, actually, I, there's a map that has the plus and minus of which which states have been more for have watched more Oppenheimer and which states have watched more Barbie. And with the exception of New Mexico, which <laughs> went very heavily for Oppenheimer, I can't imagine why. No idea. Um, maybe it's because it's part of their state history. Um, but the Deep South has been heavily Barbie. Yeah. Heavily 
in favor of watching Barbie, which I also find fascinating. And I do. I find that that fascinating. And I'm kind of wondering what kind of conversations are happening as people are going to see that see the film. But also based on a new NPR study, there are statistically more queer individuals in the American South than anywhere else in the country. So I also am so curious as we're saying like, okay, attendance of the films, there's still, it's coming back to this. As we talk about intersectionality, it's the thing that was never really addressed in the room. While there were queer illusions, naming the binary also negates a lot of the, the reality of, of sexuality and gender identity in our conversation. And um, it, it's still who is filling those theaters. It's not just women and it's not just straight men. We got lots of we got lots of our queer bees who are coming and showing up for Barbie too. No. Well, I think that's you know. Although there were a lot of men who went with their partners. That's true. That's true. Which uh, was fun to see. I was going to say, I think about the <laughs> opening of Deadpool when he's like, "You thought you were going on a date film, you know? Like, I my movie released on Valentine's Day. Your boyfriend tricked you, and yet here we are. Uh, we do these things to each other, and I'm okay with that." But I also think that's that's a good and important note for us to end on. So, Sarah, tell me, what are you enjoying right now? Um, I recently finished listening to, because I've got a couple books also on paperback in my hands, but I finished listening to Angeline Boulay's book, Warrior Girl Unearthed. Mm-hmm. And it is the follow-up to The Firekeeper's Daughter. It was, it was really, really, really good. It was beautifully written. Um, it was a great mystery. It was, you know, it had kind of the same mystery vein that Firekeeper's Daughter had. And you're trying to figure out like, what are, what's going to happen? Who's responsible for these missing indigenous women, which is the, uh, which is one of the subplots of the book. Um, but it also just is a beautiful look at Ojibwe culture mm-hmm. and the importance of repatriating artifacts and bodies to our various indigenous cultures across the United States and what goes into repatriating bodies and artifacts to um, different indigenous cultures. And as someone who's from Michigan, I appreciate this discussion of the UP and everything that is a part of the landscape as well as of the novel. Um, But it's beautiful. And then my husband and I decided on, we were just flipping through Apple Plus and we were like, okay, we're done with Ted Lasso. So what are we going to do? Like we're, we're done with our delightful Ted Lasso. Now we need something else to watch before we decide what we're going to do with Apple TV. And um, we started watching Silo, which is a dystopian post-apocalyptic future in which people have gone underground and they have no idea why they're underground, but they've been living underground for decades and decades and generations and generations Mm -hmm. and what's above the silo it was fascinating and then we listened to the three book series on vacation (laughs) so we and they're not at all the same like there's some similarities the care some of the same characters but they did a lot of changes in the film in the television show that made sense the television show but the book was also really really good it was engaging it was interesting it kept us awake while my husband was driving down to florida so that was good what about you so i'll start with my my tv enjoyment my my partner calls it my hallmark tv show even though it's uh on netflix but it's got kind of that it's, it's the idealized small town 
friendship world of the Sweet Magnolias. Uh, a new season is out recently, and I, I've just enjoyed it. It's been a good little escapism. The basis is these three friends, one of whom is played by, here's your fun Broadway fact of the day, one of them is played by the original Aida from Broadway. Uh, so there you go. She she sang for a bit for the first time this season. And then after one of my friends told me that, I couldn't unhear it. I was like, oh, yeah, you're Aida. Got it. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, the, the premise is these three friends who've been friends their whole lives, and they have a weekly tradition where they meet together for drinks and they pour it out, which is they pour drinks for each other, but they also just share their lives with each other authentically. And in this season of my life where friendship is something where I often have to set a timer for <laughs> to schedule it, I, and I know that doesn't really necessarily go away completely once you are a parent. It's something I, I, I love and I crave. I am realizing more and more we, we make media about these close-knit friendship groups because we we want that in our lives right so this does that again and i love it season three was the the right amount of small town drama mixed with just just fun and friendship and then as much as you and i both love the anthropocene reviewed i think that is you know like the resource for teaching creative nonfiction for high school teachers. I truly believe the next resource for teaching poetry has to be both the podcast and the essay collection by Pablo Gotuma called Poetry Unbound. I cannot recommend it enough. It is just beautiful. And he gives you a way to enter into the world of poetry without it being aggressive. I think poetry is often so alienating and he just gives it to you in a way that feels like home. And I'm saying that partially as a poet, but I, I dog-eared so many pages in my copy while also being a fan of the podcast. You know, it, basically what he's published is each of his scripts for the podcast, which maybe we need to look into someday. But anyway, it's uh, very, very, very well done. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've been reading it slowly because I've been wanting to savor it. I think I started it back in February and I finally finished it and cannot recommend it enough. So... On that note, you guys, quick reminder, we're back at it. We're happy to be lit thinking again with you. You can always look back at our blogs that we shared with you over the summer, but our podcast is back on and we're using new recording software if you haven't heard yet. So enjoy our sweet, sweet sounds. And you might even get to see some video content of Sarah and me staring at each other and making funny faces as we talk to each other. But anyway, don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Think Podcast and subscribe to that Substack newsletter so you can get some of that blog content. And then you will always know when a new episode gets dropped. Mm -hmm. So you'll always be on top of what's happening with everything we're doing. Mm -hmm. This has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking people.